Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hi, my name is Phil Russell, and I'm your host of Dirty Steel Toe Boots, a podcast for employers about OSHA inspections, citations, and litigation. The podcast is presented by my firm, Ogletree Deacons, the premier global labor and employment law firm for businesses. I'm the host, but I'll be joined by many co-hosts along the way, including my colleagues and some special guests from time to time. This podcast is intended for employers and will provide some thoughts, ideas, strategies, and tips to consider. Of course, we won't be providing legal advice for any particular situation, but hopefully some helpful content will be here for you to consider. Our intended audience is in-house counsel, safety executives and their team, HR executives and directors, and others who may be involved in an OSHA inspection, citation, or maybe facing litigation. So what did we cover before? Episode number one was an intro. Got us kicked off with some four tips for employers to consider before OSHA shows up. We all know there are more inspections, more citations, and more litigation already underway under the Biden administration. And then we covered in episode number two with our Eric Hobbs, who's our practice group leader, we talked about who is OSHA. We discussed the agency and the new leadership, and Eric emphasized the critical importance of building relationships with OSHA officials, not only in D.C., but also really primarily in local area offices. Today, we're going to cover why OSHA would show up with my friend and colleague, Deanna Hayes. Deanna, say hi. Hello, everyone. So, Deanna is one of my partners in the firm. She is in the office right next to me. We are broadcasting today live from Champa Bay. Uh, and so I'll let you guys all figure out what that means, but just look up your local professional sports franchise and see who's number one. So let's get started, Deanna. What I just said about the importance of relationships, do you have anything to add to what Eric and I discussed last week? Yes, you know, I just think that you can't emphasize enough how important it is to develop those relationships with OSHA. And sometimes that means, you know, attending an informal conference just to let them know that the company has taken some steps to do the right thing and protect employees in the workplace. And just remember to take advantage of those opportunities when they arise. All right, fantastic. So, Deanna, you're an OSHA and employment lawyer. What does that mean? Tell our friends a little bit about you and your background. Sure. So I have done labor and employment law my whole career. Uh, Like you, I'm board certified in labor and employment law by the Florida Bar. And about a little less than 10 years ago now, as you know, I was fortunate enough to get to work with you on some OSHA cases, and I've been doing OSHA law ever since. And it's an area of practice that I really enjoy. I think you get to learn a lot about clients in a business when there's an OSHA incident or even working proactively with clients to improve their safety programs. And it makes me feel good at the end of the day if I can help a client make their workplace safer. All right. Fun fact. Give us a fun fact about the NAs. So fun fact would be that during the pandemic in the great year of 2020, I, like everyone else, got a little stir crazy. So I decided to do a red streak. So what that means is 
I was crazy enough to run at least one mile a day every day outside for a year. So through that, <laughs> I listened wow. to a lot of podcasts. I listened to a lot of music. I got outside and it was challenging, but it was something that I really enjoyed doing. Well, I'll tell you, you helped inspire my streak, which so far has been from February 4th of 2021 until now and ongoing. I've posted something about OSHA every single day to LinkedIn, uh, every business day. Now, I've, I've added a few weekend days here and there. I did miss one weekday, but it was a really good fishing day, so that's my excuse. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a reader of the post. I enjoy them. I think it's great to see how different um, members of our LinkedIn community comment, whether it's our colleagues or in-house counsel, safety directors. I think it's great to spur discussion about these hot topics. Well, thanks, and thanks for jumping in. So let's do the OSHA update, then we'll do the quick tip, then we're jumping into our main topic. Here's your update from OSHA. What's in the news regarding enforcement, inspections, policy, and personnel? Well, last week we mentioned and discussed the confusion that was created by the CDC's guidance regarding, quote, public indoor spaces and when or if OSHA will jump into the discussion. Uh, this week, it seems we may be heading towards updated guidance from OSHA. Nothing official on that yet, Deanna, but that's what we're hearing. That's what we, I think, are expecting right now is that at some point we're going to see OSHA step in uh, and say something about what that public indoor space term may mean for employers as we continue to see this next phase of dealing with COVID. But on another subject, you had a hot topic, literally a hot topic you wanted to bring up. What's that? So pardon the pun here, but the hot topic is heat stress. So I have been involved with some inspections lately here in Florida where the local OSHA offices are really looking at heat stress from all different angles. And it seems to be a directive that they're getting from the national office. It's a focus area. As some of you may know, there was a bill introduced not too long ago to try to force OSHA to create a specific heat stress standard um, that has not passed, but there is some thoughts that it might get better traction now that we have the Biden administration in place, and it's something that OSHA is watching. So if you haven't taken a look at your heat stress prevention program and you have employees working outside in the summer, Please take a look at it. Make sure that you're training employees on how to recognize the signs and symptoms of heat stress when they're working with others. Make sure if you've got anybody working alone that they have a lifeline and someone they can reach out to if they encounter any issues and that you have a plan in place to handle any first aid situations when it comes to heat stress. Great tip, hot tip there. Very good. I like to play on the words. And for those of you in California, Cal OSHA, uh, our friends Aaron Tynan and Kevin Bland, we have uh, some new folks out there too. We're going to tell you about them soon, have them on as guests, but we've got a very robust Cal OSHA team, and those folks will talk to you all about the heat stress specific standards that Cal OSHA has for both outdoor and indoor heat, uh, something that's not uh, true, no specific standard for Fed OSHA, but Fed OSHA uses the general duty clause to go after employers on the heat stress issues, so good, good tip there, Deanna. All right, so that was the update, and that was the hot update. So the quick tip of the uh, this episode really deals with, uh, touches upon this issue of why OSHA might show up at an employer. And the quick tip is this. OSHA can only inspect based on two circumstances. One is employer permission, 
and the second is under a legal authority of a warrant. Now, we've collectively handled hundreds and hundreds of cases together over the last 10 years, and if you added them together, and I'm not once told an employer to go make OSHA go get a warrant. I know that there may be some circumstances when that might be uh, might be appropriate. I just haven't encountered one myself. I think others in our practice group may have, but those circumstances would be exceptionally narrow. But what an employer can and should consider, uh, Deanna, is consent for the inspection, but make sure that the scope is well controlled. Is that right? Absolutely. And you can do that from the beginning. So if OSHA shows up and your legal counsel is not present or your safety director who normally interacts with OSHA is not present, you can hold them at bay for a reasonable amount of time. And that may kind of prevent the need to play the warrant card from the very beginning. So again, have a plan in place about what you will do if OSHA shows up. You can escort them to a private conference room so they're not in the middle of your operations and ask them to wait for who your representative will be. Uh, Philip and I have both had the situation where we get on the phone and do the opening conference with OSHA over the phone so that we can represent the client on the fly if we're not able to get to the client's location within an hour or so. And usually, knocking on wood here, the OSHA compliance officer will work with us on that. Their main goal the first day is typically to get the file open, and then they may be agreeable to doing interviews and a walk around at a later date when you can have counsel present. So is this a situation in which, let, let's go back to last episode with Eric, is this a situation, Deanna, where relationships with the local office can be helpful? Yes, absolutely. So if it's a compliance officer that you've worked with, or if you don't know that person, but you know the assistant area director or the area director, and they know that you're reasonable and that you're going to be cooperative with them to get them what they need as far as requests, they're going to be more likely to give you that leniency when the time comes, absolutely. So there's your quick tip of this episode, consent with control. How about that for a catchphrase, consent with control. All right, so let's go to the main topic. Why is OSHA here? We talked before about who OSHA is. Now let's talk about why OSHA would show up at an employer. And there really are three main areas. We're gonna really focus on the two most common today. We're gonna to talk about reportable events, which is where the employers are required by law to pick up the phone and call the government or do it with their convenient online reporting form. Or there was a complaint by an employee. And let's actually, let, let's take these in reverse order, actually. Let's go with the employee complaint. So for those, there are two kinds. There's the kind of complaint where an employee claims retaliation, and that's under what's called 11C of the OSH Act. And then the second kind is where an employee calls and complains about a current safety or health hazard to which they are exposed or think they're exposed. Is that right? That is right. And those complaints really can come in in different ways, typically. And most often, when you have a retaliation complaint, the employer will receive that in writing, and OSHA will ask for a written response to the allegations. When you have a hazard complaint that comes in from an employee, it may be an RRI, or rapid response investigation, where the employer will also get a letter asking them to respond to the complaint, or OSHA can just show up and do an on-site inspection. So those RRIs, Rapid Response Investigation, that'll be, I think, its own separate episode. We can really, maybe multiple, we can do deep dives there and I think help our 
audience. But jumping back to the 11C retaliation, that's a different group of people inside OSHA that handle those inspections. Right, correct. Always something an interesting dynamic because OSHA has, under its investigation of statutory authority, I think 42 different statutes or something like that, including things like the Davis, I mean, the, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act, Sarbanes-Oxley. Right? I mean, my goodness. I mean, they threw a laundry list of things. Hey, OSHA, go investigate these things because it's all retaliation. So we have some folks at OSHA that have to learn to be bankers. So we'll save that for another time. But on the hazard kind, yes, RRI, we'll talk about that. There's a hazard in inspection some other time. So if an employee complaint might trigger OSHA showing up, OSHA compl compliance officer, uh, the co-show shows up and explains, of course, as we tell everyone, ask OSHA why they're here, what's the purpose of the inspection, if it's not already obvious. But one thing they won't say is, oh, your employee, John Smith, complained. They won't tell the name of the employee, right? Exactly, right. OSHA is going to protect the complainant's identity. It's called the informer's privilege. It's the same um, reasoning behind why OSHA likes to keep employee interviews private and not have an employer present when it's a non-supervisory interview. Okay, well, let's talk about those reportable events. Now, here I'm talking about the distinction between what's recordable, which is what goes on your logs, employers versus what is reportable, meaning you must pick up the phone or get log in to the OSHA's webpage and report something bad that happened. And there are four categories of reportable events. Fatality is one. Second is hospitalization. Third is amputation. Fourth is loss of an eye. I don't know why loss of an eye merits its own category. I'm sure I've said this for years now in seminars. Somebody probably at some point, maybe as a result of this podcast, will show me the data. But apparently when OSHA changed the rules, it merited its own separate category. I heard a really a gruesome story about an inspection when I was talking with a local compliance officer where it was a garage door repairman who didn't check the tightness on a spring before he let down a garage door and the spring just popped an eye oh, right out. So it, it can and does happen. So. Well, it strikes me that that would probably require hospitalization. I don't think you can just use first aid to pop it back in, but all right. So loss of an eye. So uh, let's take them again in reverse order. That's loss of an eye. And you have 24 hours in which to make that report to uh, to the government. Let's go back up to number three then, amputation. What is an amputation? Does that mean I have to lose my hand? No, sometimes it can just be the tip of a finger. So that means, let's think about then a plant floor, manufacturing plant using saws. If it's not guarded properly and there's a, something other than just a laceration and a piece of the tip comes off, that's enough? Yes, that's enough. All right, so that's a broader definition of amputation than thinking about a whole hand or an appendage or a finger or a toe getting chopped off. Correct, correct. It's not just like in the war movies when they remove an entire leg. Are we still talking 24 hours? Yes, 24 okay. hours. All right, hospitalization. Hot topic here, to use the term again. Uh, hot topic for hospitalizations, of course, because of COVID. But the base rule in hospitalization is 24 hours after the incident, you have to call OSHA. 
Correct. Unless the hospitalization occurs more than 24 hours after the work-related incident. If it occurs after 24 hours, it is no longer reportable, but it is still recordable on the OSHA logs. As long as it's work-related. As long as it's work-related. Hence the issue with COVID. Correct. Okay. And with COVID, for those who are uh, fortunate enough to be covered under the healthcare ETS, those rules have changed. So what OSHA has done, has re it has removed those timeframe exceptions. So now you have to report the hospitalizations from COVID re if they're work-related, regardless of whether or not they occurred within the first 24 hours. Okay, so hospitalization means what? Does that mean going to the emergency room? Does that mean just going down to the down the street clinic? What is hospitalization? So OSHA defines it as inpatient admission or receiving treatment beyond first aid. So inpatient treatment, but not observation, right? Correct. So that means that there are some scenarios in which someone might get admitted to a hospital only for observation. Correct. And going back to our hot topic example of heat stress, for instance, if you have an employee who's feeling lightheaded or who may have um, fainted at work and they get admitted to the ER for observation but then get released, that might be a situation where it's not reportable. So the challenge then is how does an employer know? Uh, how does an employer know about the, the what is going on inside the hospital when you have access restrictions because of COVID? And information uh, is limited because of not only COVID, but also because sometimes the family just won't talk to the employer about what's going on. Sure. And thankfully, at least the standard contemplates that it, the timeline starts once the employer has knowledge. So if you don't learn within the first 24 hours that an employee has been admitted into the hospital and your last piece of information was that the employee was in the ER for observation, then that is acceptable. So it's important for whoever is in communication with the employee, with the hospital, with the employee's family to note when they learn that information because OSHA will ask, well, when did you find out that they were admitted to the hospital? So, so that's a good point. And I think that our, our, our audience really needs to, to think about that. What can an employer do in those circumstances. And OSHA, you know, I recently had a surprisingly hotly contested citation for untimely reporting of a hospitalization. Went all the way up, we contested it, went up to the solicitor's office, and the conversations there were interesting because what the solicitor's view was, was that the employer has essentially a reasonable care standard. You've got to try something. You can't just say, oh, I can't talk to the employee, the family won't talk to us, the hospital won't let us in. You can say those things, but only if you have tried. Only if you make it up. So you can't just stick your head in the sand. You can't stick your head in the sand. you got to make an effort, and uh, and then that will satisfy. Okay, and what's the time period again? It was 24 hours on hospitalization? Yes. Okay, now let's turn our attention to what we have dealt with far more this year than we ever would want to. I think we're now over 15. Fatalities. Let's talk about that. That's the the tragedy when, of the worst kind when a uh, when a worker loses his or her life on the job. Let's start with the time frame. How quickly do we have to get in that report? Eight hours. What if it happens at nine o'clock at night? 
Eight hours. Eight hours. What if it's on the weekend? Eight hours. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Can you call OSHA on the weekends? I hear they don't work on the weekends. They've got limits on how many hours they can work, right? <laughs> you can call the hotline or you can go online. And I think we have varying schools of thoughts about what the better approach is, whether to call, call in a reportable incident or to go online. I personally like the online reporting. Just be careful about what you put in there because you probably don't have a lot facts right when an incident happens, but it gives you a time stamp. So there's no question about when you made the report and that the report was timely. And you'll notice in those fields, some are starred, which means they're required. Only fill out the required boxes initially. You can give OSHA the rest of the information later when you have it. Well, let's just pause right there for a minute. That form you fill out, dear employers, is not a confessional. It is not a time, and it is also not a time to reach early conclusions. If it is within eight hours after a tragedy, a fatality, or even if it's one of the others, and it's within 24 hours, the reality is your conclusions at that point likely need to be tested by further investigation and evidence. So be careful about speculating and reaching conclusions too quickly. So good advice on filling that out. I think I agree with you. I tend to like the form because I can get online with our clients, work with them about what goes in there, and they put two points of contact in that form. One for the employer, one for us. And if it's to an office with which we have an ongoing relationship, I think that it might help that we can bank on our relationships and help add value to the client by putting our name in there. Agreed, and it can help buy some time because sometimes it's easier for the legal representative to say, you know, I've just been retained to help the client with this. I'm still getting up to speed on what happened. I will share the information with you as quickly as I can. Okay. So those are the main four things that result in a reporting. So then the next question is, if you make that report, what happens next? You mentioned an RRI. So let's just, let's maybe give that a moment or two more. What is an RRI? So a rapid response investigation means that OSHA has decided they're not going to immediately conduct an on-site inspection. Instead, they're going to send the employer written notice um, that they're looking into the, the incident and ask them what happened. So usually they will say, you know, what was the employee doing at the time of the incident? Um, what are your safety rules related to whatever the work was that the employee was doing at the time? Um, they may also ask for copies of your safety program, OSHA logs, and other basic information. But it is a written investigation. But there's a nice disclaimer on the front that says, based upon what you tell us, or don't tell us if you ignore this letter, we may decide to conduct an on-site inspection. I think we'll do a deep dive on RRIs in another episode. But the key takeaway, I think, there, too, is the form they send the employer says non-mandatory investigative tool. Well, if the government tells me not mandatory, I might be wanting to listen to that direction. <laughs> All right, we'll cover that some other time, but let's talk about then next, of course, OSHA might show up and do an on-site inspection, and they don't have to call and say, thanks for the report, we're on the way, we'll be there in two hours. Correct. I always tell clients just to assume if you've made a report to OSHA, that OSHA is coming. So get prepared. Make sure that the job site or your shop is cleaned up and ready for an OSHA inspection. Take a look at your OSHA logs because you're required to produce those to OSHA on site. And remember, I think a lot of employers kind of forget the, the fine points when it comes to recording that really you are supposed to put an incident on the 300 logs within seven days of learning that the incident was work-related. So they should be up to date 
as of a week ago when you submit those to OSHA. All right. And then, of course, there's a third option that what might happen if you make a report for any of these is nothing. And although rare, it actually does happen from time to time that nothing happens. OSHA doesn't show up. And if they reach out past the, if you make it past the six-month statutory deadline after the uh, incident, OSHA can do nothing. So that's what might make OSHA show up. There was another category of emphasis programs, national and regional. We, we put that one off for another episode. We'll do that on a deeper dive. But that's another reason. It's just not the one that seems to drive the inspections the most. Why OSHA shows up really is primarily driven by reportable events and employee complaints. So we hope you're giving you some value on those today. The main action item from today's episode, I think, Dan, is to just have a plan. Know what you're going to do before the incident occurs that must be reported, and certainly before OSHA may show up for any other reason. The key emphasis here, though, is not to just have a plan that is known by the executive team and the safety director, but to make sure that it's known by site managers and supervisors. Three times last week, I had OSHA show up at clients for various reasons, and three times out of those three, the executive team, who I work with the most, knew what to do, but they didn't know that OSHA was on site at their facilities. Three times it happened, so it was a surprising week. And all three times, there were local site plant managers, job site supervisors, foremen, who had no idea what to do. The training simply didn't make its way down. So that is my soapbox that I'm getting up on now, which is to try and help emphasize to employers the absolute need to consider getting that training and that knowledge down to folks who might be the first line of contact when OSHA just shows up. That's a great point. So it's important for your security personnel, if you have them, to know, for whoever is manning the front desk to know what the procedures are, and whoever is the keeper of your OSHA logs. Make sure that that person knows that they have to be produced within four hours. That's right. Well, Deanna, thank you so much. Appreciate you joining me on episode three today. Well, I'm sure we will have you on future episodes for deeper dives as well. I look forward to it. It's been a great experience. Thank you for having me, and thank you to everyone for joining us. Thanks for joining us today, folks. We'll see you on LinkedIn. Both of us are there and engage in the platform regularly. Check us out at ogletree.com as well, where you will find our Workplace Safety and Health Practice Group blog and other resources. And we will see you next time on Dirty Steel Toe Boots. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember... The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.